Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a panel I moderated last weekend at SM Bash, the conference for buyers and owners of small businesses. The idea for the panel was this. You hear from a lot of acquisition entrepreneurs that they raised money from investors to buy their businesses. But if you've never done that, recruiting strangers to wire you tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars for your acquisition, well, that probably seems mysterious at best, completely unrealistic at worst. But it's not. You'll hear one of the two panelists, Kevin Biebelhausen, talk about how he did purely cold outreach to gin up investor interest in his deal, and successfully. He raised $800,000 for his acquisition over just a few weeks. You'll recognize the other panelist, Kostub Dio, from my interview in April. Kostub was more experienced in the ways of raising money, coming as he did from the world of private equity. And you'll hear how thoughtful he was about a few of the key questions when it came to pitching investors. So between the two of these entrepreneurs, you'll get a strong sense for what this process of raising money looks like, what it feels like doing it for the first time, and what best practices are. Hopefully it will leave you with a sense that you don't have to be some connected finance dude to raise money from investors to buy a business. Indeed, the trick is not finding investors. Turns out that's relatively easy. The real trick is finding the deal, the worthy business to buy. But you already knew that. Also, you'll hear Costub and Kevin refer to an investor list. That list is linked in the notes. Finally, you'll hear some names mentioned. Sam, Tony, Lisa, Mike. All those folks' LinkedIn's are also in the notes. Okay, please enjoy this recorded session from SM Bash with Costub Dio, who bought a tree trimming business, and Kevin Biebelhausen, who bought a textile, wholesale, and distribution business. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. I want to share an update on the Acquisition Lab. As you know, the lab is a highly vetted, cohort-based accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal reviews with Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, potential deal team introductions, and a very active Slack group with other searchers on the path. Well, the update is that the lab recently passed 60 businesses acquired and for well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. Also, all members now enjoy lifetime access to the lab. Because when you buy a business, it's often just the first of many, and the lab wants to support you in every deal, not just your first. Lastly, check out my recent interview with Shane Ursum, episode 105. Shane acquired a business with over a million dollars in EBITDA in just six months, and he attributes a lot of his deal success to what he learned in the lab. Check out acquisitionlab.com or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Will Smith. I host Acquiring Minds. And what we're going to do on this panel is have a conversation with a couple of business buyers, searchers, who raised capital to make their acquisitions. So we heard from Tony this morning. We heard from the investor the, the investor perspective. 
But um, we haven't really heard what it's like for searchers to find, work with investors, raise that money, and then what it looks like not only pre-acquisition, but post-acquisition. So both of these gentlemen raise money for their acquisitions. Very different stories, each of them. Every story in, in this world is, of course, very unique and messy. So we're going to get two totally different perspectives and hopefully shed some light on what this looks and feels like to raise money from investors. So Kevin Biebelhausen and Kostub Dio. Kostub was on stage yesterday, but Kostub, refresh our memory, who you are, what you bought, and give us some bullet points on the role that the investors played in your deal, and then we'll do you, Kevin. Sure. Uh, so Kostub Dio, I bought a tree trimming business called Bluma Tree Experts in Seattle in uh, February of last year. I had a pretty classic self-funded deal structure, so 80-ish percent SBA leverage from Live Oak, um, a little bit under 10% seller note from the seller. And then, you know, I raised capital. I put in some of my own equity. So I have 12 investors in the deal who are in a pref, just like self-funded deals. And then I have a majority of the common um, and all major governance rights. Great. We're going to um, pick that apart a little bit. Kevin Biebelhausen. I'm Kevin Biebelhausen. Um, in January, I purchased Heritage Fabrics um, out of Concord, which is just north of Charlotte, North Carolina. My deal structure was actually fairly similar. I mean, I had about 70% uh, uh, debt um, from SBA on there and 20% seller note, 10% equity. I also have about 12 people on my cap table. Uh, so, you know, I'd be curious to actually know what your minimums were, but like my minimums were 50,000. Um, I probably should have raised it. Uh, that's something we can also talk about too, but yeah. Great. So let's hear a little bit about, for people who've maybe never raised capital and we're kind of flying through terms, a lot of the people in this room will already understand those, but let's move real slowly. So both of you just said about 10% of your deals was equity. Costa, how does that work? How is that 10% made up? The standard self-funded deal structure on the equity side is of that equity amount, right? 10% of the total purchase price, roughly, of that equity amount, the searcher usually puts in somewhere from zero to 20% of the actual equity capital. The investors put in somewhere from 80 to 100% of the equity capital. There, the investor's money goes in as preferred equity, which means it's sitting behind the debt ahead of the common. The searcher, they usually, sometimes they get their actual capital as pref, sometimes, mine is not. Um, so they're just sitting in the common. And so the way this works is that the investor's pref has a return on it. So in my deal, it's 10% annualized. So before I get a dollar out of the deal, the investors need to have returned a 10% annualized return on their capital, which we call like return on capital. They need a return of their capital, which is the initial pref amount. And then there's a common equity split behind that, which is every incremental dollar. So that incremental amount, the common equity split, is where the searcher kind of gets their economics, which in most cases, the searcher lands with 65 to 80% of the common equity behind the pref layer. Great. Anything to add to that, Kevin? <laughs> That's probably better <laughs> than I could say it. Um, I mean, I, we could talk about the initial structure, or like how much we ended up keeping or what the whatever you guys want to you know, know. Great. Well, Kosa, that was an awesome explanation. I want to understand how did you all go about learning about this? Kostab, you have a PE background, so you came into this knowing how to do deals. So that might be your answer. But Kevin, I think you were a little bit less informed about how this works. I think raising money from investors for people recently into search is mysterious and intimidating. How did you, you can fly through these terms now, but what did it look like when you were first starting out to learn all this stuff? Yeah, well, when I was first starting out, it was 2017, 2018, and the HBR guide had just come out. And um, 
somehow I found it. I think I, I, I think it was on the Harvard Business Review podcast where they were doing like a summary of the book. And I, he's like, oh, I need to go read this book. And I remember falling in love with the story. Um, and they're about buying a porter potty business. I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do. That is the coolest thing. Um, so I, I ended up getting a deal under contract uh, in 2018. Uh, long story short, it fell apart in financing. Um, they, they, they told me that I needed a certain equity amount and then I didn't. And then they were like, actually, we need to, you to double it. And um, I had put every nickel you know, into, uh, into this deal. So I didn't have any more money. So I had to walk away because I didn't know how to raise equity. I knocked on a couple doors and you know, didn't get anywhere. And I was like, okay, I guess that's it. Um, so fast forward, you know, I'd, I'd gone to corporate and um, you know, was there for five years or whatever. And then eventually, I was like, I actually still want to do this. You know, I'm, I'm still passionate about this. So um, I, you know, I, I started, you know, going on Twitter and, and uh, networking and finding that there was a whole community that had sprung up between 2018 and uh, 2022 that just that didn't exist before. And so there's a lot more information. And suddenly I realized, oh, just because you're self-funded doesn't mean you can't raise equity. Um, I, I had that disconnect, you know, like I thought self-funded was like, oh, it's just all of my money. Um, which was a nice surprise. Great. One of the first steps in this process of raising money is, of course, connecting with investors. And we were told by Tony earlier today that you should do that earlier in your process rather than later. But if you're coming into this cold and maybe you're not on Twitter, maybe you're just listening to podcasts or you're learning about this in some other way, how did you all meet your investors? So if you're coming into this cold and just listening to the podcast not in the room, you should get on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah. That's step one. Um, <laughs> Twitter's easy. Step two, Sam Rosati now has a list that's pretty public of people who are in, interested in investing in these types of deals. The key thing with that list is people have sort of given you a sense of what they're interested in, right? So you're not trying to blanket email everybody, but start to find people that seem like they might share the type of deal interest that you've got interest in. And, you know, like it, start having those conversations. Reach out to folks and say, listen, I'm in the search process. I don't have a deal yet. This is sort of what I'm looking to do, or even better, if you've got, you know, when you're searching, you're always looking at five or six deals at a time, have one or two deals for you to just chat with them about, right? Like the goal is to be able to work with an investor who thinks about the world the way you do, right? You're going to be married to this person for like longer than you've probably been with your significant other. And so the more and more conversations you can have with them before you need them to commit to a deal, the better because then you are aligned and like, hey, we think similarly. That means you know, there's less likelihood for a miscommunication down the road. Yeah, so that sounds really smart and it's probably what I should have done, but I didn't do that. Um, also because I didn't know any better. I mean, I, I was terrified to raise money. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I, I came into this thinking again that you know, it was all my own capital going into it and then realized I could raise money and then it was like, wow, that's great. I still don't know how to do it. Uh, and and you're, I'm afraid to do it. Um, so I, I partnered with a group, um, an equity provider um, that, you know, gave me a commitment letter and everything. So I, I, I felt like, you know, I, I felt like I was on top of the world, you know, like I'd, I'd been given a $5 million equity commitment letter and I was going to, you know, go be a master of the universe. Um, three days before my LOI was signed, uh, I got a call that said, um, actually, we we're just really busy. So good luck to you. Uh, so then I was faced with a, deci a decision uh, whether or not to fold on the deal or, um, just try and figure it out myself. So the first phone calls I made were to Sam Rosati, Kevin Henderson, and Eric Pasifici, and kind of told them what I was going through. And they said, no, nah, you can do it. You can raise the money. Um, so, and, and right around that time is when Sam published his list, you know, sort of the, what he calls public domain investors. Um, and 
I, I wasn't surgical going through that list. I emailed the people who uh, said they only invest in HVAC deals um, because I didn't care at that point. I just wanted my deal out there. Uh, so, I mean, that's, it was just, it was a trial by error um, and figuring out, you know, how to, how to communicate with investors and um, what they were looking for. And I've changed my pitch multiple times, just trying to, you know, test it and figure out what would actually stick. In fairness, there's like ideal and then there's like, you got to get your fucking deal done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Like I didn't reach out to investors until um, I didn't talk to an investor until after QOE. So by doing that, I gave myself a really limited window to raise capital uh, because, you know, Q of E, so you're about halfway through maybe, but you're 90 day period. So if you're 45 days in and suddenly it's like, okay, um, yeah, we close in six weeks and I don't have a nickel yet. So I guess I got to start raising money. Uh, so then, you know, you, you grind and figure it out. I ended up raising 800 grand in five weeks, you know, um, which was incredible for me because I had never done it before. I felt like that was a pretty major success. Well, let's actually hear what the, in the ideal situation, what the proper chronology is, how you would sequence this. So we're, we've heard today now, we've just repeated that you should be cultivating with relationships with investors early on. So that's kind of happening as you're going through your search. So that's going on in the background. But then like, let's sequence it. Costa, you want to take that? So you've got two sources of capital, obviously, debt and equity. Um, so you should also parallel be learning to the lenders, right? Meeting lenders. So I'd say right pre-LOI, you're flashing numbers to lenders you like to make sure you're getting a leverage read that is in line with what you think the deal is going to work at. So that's, but let's stick to equity. As soon as I was under LOI, I created a really simple investor deck, sort of laying out the deal, laying out what the terms are roughly going to look like, laying out why I like the business. Um, and that investor deck, I went to this list of investors I wanted to talk to. And what I said to them is like, look, right now, I don't need a number from you. What I need is like a general thumbs up, thumbs now, are you interested? And a big ballpark, like how much equity in theory would you want to invest? Um, so that was sort of step one. And the last page of that deck is, these are the things I'm planning to do for the next 60 days. Like I'm gonna do a QV, I'm gonna go inspect the assets, I'm gonna, whatever, there's like a whole list of stuff you do. Um, and, and at the end of that, I'm gonna come back to you with an updated memo that explains the results of that diligence. And that's when I'm gonna ask you to tell me a number. That's what we did. I think in theory, I mean, a lot of investors talk about, you know, hey, communicate with us prior to your deal. And I, I don't know that I necessarily believe them um, because when you go and reach out and you're just trying to have a coffee chat, essentially, you're like, okay, well, talk to me when you get a deal. But then, you know, publicly it'll be, oh, just reach out when you're early stages. Like, no, that doesn't really work. So from, in my experience, um, but yeah, since I, I started raising, um, I don't know if I would call it late in the process, but I certainly had a compressed timeline. Um, my ask was much more, uh, aggressive at that point. So I, I also built a SIM, an investor SIM and went through that whole process and sent it out. And then, you know, at the end of the pitch, it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, as, as nice and was like, so how much can I put you down for? was basically, you know, was, was kind of the vibe <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I guess I can't knock it cause it worked, but, um. I don't know that I recommend doing that. The, the other benefit of getting to space it out is you can kind of tranche your investors a little bit, where for me, coming from a private equity background, I could get a deal done. The minute the deal closed, I don't know what I'm doing, right? And so for me, I put a ton of value in being able to have a few investors that were small business owners themselves. And so what I wanted to do first was reach out to like a select few investors with that background, figure out what their number is before I went to the wider list of folks. 
um, because I didn't like I, they wouldn't be enough to fill the whole round, but I didn't want to accidentally squeeze out or like downsize folks that could offer that kind of value added investor experience. Um, so that was by giving yourself that time. If you have the ability to give yourself that time, you can kind of be a little bit more selective. Yeah. And, and Costa and I have very different backgrounds. In fact, um, I mean, I come from operations and sales, um, comes from finance and PE. So um, I actually ended up using a bastardized version of the model he used, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time. I got it through another searcher, and then I continued to bastardize it uh, and just beat it into submission until it gave me, it spat out the numbers that would make the bank happy. That's how I use the model too, so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So it's, it's varying backgrounds. Um, you, you can be successful. And so this question of value-added investors versus just purely writing checks. So let's talk about that a little bit. I guess, obviously, investors with experience and direct industry experience and maybe the deal you're looking at, that speaks for itself. That would be a good thing. What other sorts of alignments or value similarities are you looking for when you talk to your investors? And to what degree can you just look for cash? Again, this is in the scenario where you have the time to actually you know, figure this out um, and you don't just need to get the deal done. One, I'm looking for a duration match. Right, like I needed my investors to understand that there's a scenario in which I don't sell this company forever, and they need to be okay with that. Like they will get their cash back, but it will be most likely through distributions, not through a big liquidity event, which meant primarily going to high net worth individuals, not institutional investors. So you need a duration match. You need a governance match where kind of what Tony was saying earlier today, they need to understand that I'm gonna have majority of the governance control and they need to be okay with that, um, which is also a factor of trust. Um, and then the third is sort of, like, yeah, the value at, like, what are they, are they, there's a lot of great small business owners who are investors, but are they actually excited about talking to me? Like, are they excited about picking up the phone when I don't know what to do? Like, you know, the first time I need to put an employee on a PIP, is somebody going to pick up the phone? Like, because of the investors I chose, the answer was yes. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out Oberly-Risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. When you were looking for at your investors, how are you selecting them? I mean, maybe it, when it's a mad scramble, it's just like whoever. <laughs> so, I mean, at that point, you know, it's your, do you have a pulse? Do you have a bank account? <laughs> um, are you breathing? Um, then I want to talk to you. Uh, and did, you know, I talked to, you know, 300 plus people. Uh, it took a lot of work. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I felt very comfortable in the small business operation space. You know, we've heard a lot about, oh, it's very hard to operate companies and all this kind of stuff. I, it's my wheelhouse. You know, I, I grew up in small business, even though I worked in large corporates too, and, and ran divisions and all this kind of stuff. So, so I'm comfortable now that I'm in, an, I'm in an ownership position, but you know, unlike Costa, like I wasn't comfortable in the deal process or, or the raise or anything like that because I don't know, I'd never done that before. Um, so I wasn't really, I didn't really care about investor um, whether or not they, they I mean, I, I have a, a bunch of lawyers on my cap table. I have you know, um, commercial insurance brokers, um, just got, I mean, so it, their, their industry experience didn't really matter to me. Um, I really cared about like 
like fit? Like, I, is this person, I, is this somebody that I want to take a call from? Uh, is this somebody that I genuinely enjoy talking to? Um, there are some investors, uh, as I got later in my raise where I had enough money and I was like, I'm, I'm going to close, right? Um, that I didn't call back uh, because we had, we had an initial conversation and I was like, oh, I don't, that's kind of a dick. I don't really want to, I don't really want to work with this guy which was like very much uh, an exciting place to be that you can be selective at that point in time. Um, so I, if you can be selective, that's, that's obviously the best way to go about it. And if I could add one other, um, I did not want investors who I didn't feel confident understood the risk profile of what we're doing. Um, like I've got friends in tech and you know they've got the money to invest. I just didn't want to have to educate them on like, this is a small business leveraged buyout that has a high risk of going to zero. And I don't want to have that conversation after the fact of why I lost their money. I don't want to lose any of my existing investors' money, but I think they have an understanding of what, we, what we've gotten ourselves into. And so that also precludes, like, well, you just said friends, but family as well, I assume. Yeah, I don't have any family investors either. And what about you, Kevin? I don't have any money in my family or um, any rich friends. Mm -hmm. So everybody I raised from was a stranger. Would you generalize that advice or was it just how you felt, Co-Stub, that you didn't want people who don't understand the risk involved here to be involved? I mean, look, like people can make their own decisions, right? It's not my fault if somebody takes a risk they shouldn't take um, or if they don't fully understand the risk that they're taking. Like there is some element of buyer beware in the capital markets. But for me personally, I felt kind of a moral responsibility. Mm -hmm. The way you guys are making it sound is we're talking about being able to be selective. And so contrast this with like Silicon Valley, where you hear the story of the startup entrepreneur knocking on every door on Sand Hill Road and just getting tons of no's. It feels like if you have a deal, the pencils in this world, and I've heard it said explicitly, like, and Mike Bodkin said it earlier today, like the money is there, the capital is out there. Do you both feel that way? I mean, Kevin, you <laughs> were left at the altar and then we're able to put it all together really quickly. So I guess so. Yeah, look, I mean, the capital is out there. You just, you have to, you're smarter if you're selective about who you reach out to. I spun my wheels. I, I reached out to traditional search funds. I reached out to, I downloaded a list of all the SBICs uh, in North Carolina and contacted all of them. Um, I, I went on Search Funder, for better or for worse, and was looking for investors. Um, I, got, I got laughed at multiple times from my terms. I got, I mean, I, I got all, I got everything. Every kind of response, and I and you know I offered pretty pretty good terms for a self-funded deal in the traditional in the traditional sense, um, but you know you wouldn't know it uh, based off of some of the conversations I had, which were really defeating. You know, it's like these are the worst terms I've ever seen, and who would ever invest in this deal? And it just makes you feel like you know about that big. But you stayed true to those terms ultimately. I did, yeah. I didn't have to modify the terms. Uh, I was prepared to if I needed to because I, I was determined to close this deal. I would have given up more equity if I had to, but I didn't have to. So that's nice. Great to have options. So you just talked about going through many, many investor calls and um, how some of those can made you feel pretty small based on terms. You also said that like you got better at those conversations as they went. What does a good conversation with an investor like what is a good performance on the buyer searchers part look like part a and then i'll ask part b i like it is a sales call right at its core you are selling a deal to them you are trying to you know win their capital the problem is it's such a long-term relationship that you kind of you don't want to have to sell them on it right you want to be able to 
explain the merits of the deal, explain the risks of the deal, and make sure you're going to lock arms with them on this journey together. Like, for example, in my deal, I was very explicit, like, hey, we are, EBITDA is going to go down for probably two years, right? And that way, now that EBITDA has gone down, like, I'm not getting calls from my investors being like, what the fuck, right? And so, to me, that was an important part of the process. And like, for the right type of investor, that candor and transparency is welcomed. And like, that's the right type of investor for me. Again, um, this is like, if you've got the privilege of like having time and selectiveness. Um. Yeah. I mean, look, I didn't, I didn't even know about a J curve when I, when I did my model. Um, I, <laughs> so I'm, I, I, I certainly wasn't smart enough to model in that EBITDA will decrease, but like, guess what? If you buy a business, you're not going to be stagnant. You want to grow. That's the whole point. And so you're going to spend more money. And I didn't really make that connection until I was in the seat and like, dang, our cash balance is kind of low. I'm like, well, yeah, because you're reinvesting a lot more dollars than the previous owner was into the company. Probably something I should have considered uh, and modeled in, but I didn't. I didn't know any better. Um, so about you, you asked about you know, what, what constitutes a successful investor call. I mean, it's, it's alignment on, on values, alignment on um, you know, what, they, what they would expect out of you as, a, as, a, as an operator. I had one uh, investor specifically request that we send monthly financials. Okay. You know, that's not a problem for my company. We do, we do reviewed financials. It's very buttoned up. Um, and so, you know, that was something that was easy to agree to. Um, and then also, you know, you, you mentioned that I got better at it over time, which is true about everything. But, um, you know, I, I started kind of with this much broader pitch. And eventually I figured out that what the investors wanted, or at least the people that I was, I was um, vibing with, uh, they wanted to know when their capital was getting returned. How quickly can you get me my money back? And what's my pref rate? <laughs> you know, how much money am I earning on my money? Um, equity is sort of, it's blue sky, you know, like you can, it's, it's, it's worth really nothing to them until you do distributions. And even then it's not like a, a huge amount in our, in our space because they might own a couple points of, of equity. Um, so they want to earn money on their in initial investments. So they want to earn their 12 grand a year on, on a $100,000 investment. And I think for me, I was selecting for investors who thought about it the opposite, where they don't really, I mean, they want to know that the money's there, but they're not asking for the distributions to happen right away. They would rather that compound. And so I was selecting for folks who would like to own it for 30 years, because that means we found something to do with that capital in the business for a long period of time. Yeah. I, I didn't know that was possible. Like I, 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 when I, when I looked at the, when I looked at the model, when I looked at the, the, the landscape overall, it was like, oh, you hold for five to seven years and you sell. Okay. So that's what I figured that I was going to do. And then even though, even though as I was raising, I kept thinking like, I don't really want to sell. Like once I get in, I don't want to think about flipping this in five to seven years. I just didn't know that other people did that. And so I didn't, I didn't know to look for investors that were, you know, committed long-term. We, oh, we don't need distribution. Like we were, I was talking about with Mike earlier, um, who, you know, they don't do distributions or they don't, they haven't, they kept everything in the company. I'm like, I didn't know that was an option. I thought, you know, we had to, we had to dividend the cash out. What I actually told my prospective investors was, I don't really know what we're going to do with this. <laughs> what I said is it's going to go down one of three paths. Like, first off, I'm going to spend two years heads down in the business and then it's going to be one, we keep growing it organically, two, we start growing it inorganically, or three, we start running it for cash and distribute. Mm -hmm. 
And that third option, COSUB, if it goes that way where you're just taking cash out of the business, does that include you continuing to work 40, 50, and 60 hours in the business? And where I'm going with that is, you know, a lot of us are attracted to this opportunity, hard workers willing to take risk and so on, but we also envision a future of kind of being able to have freedom, right? And taking on investors can feel a little bit like taking on bosses. How does that play in terms of the if you take on investors, do you feel like, oh, all of a sudden I've just adopted a few bosses and I can't have this freedom that is the whole reason I'm in this game in the first place? For me, what I would love to be able to do, you know, I showed my investors a base case that gets to a mid-30s IRR, which I think is kind of standard self-funded equity economics. I would love to get to a point where I can say, hey guys, I'm going to offer to buy out your equity such that you've earned a mid-30s IRR. You can choose not to sell to me, but now we're like locking arms for a different ride, which is a little bit more freedom centered on me and still cash flow generative to be clear. And if they don't want to sign up for that, then I can buy them out on the terms we'd sort of, I'd pitched them on initially, but I do feel kind of a moral responsibility to get to that end point. I'm thinking about doing the exact same thing, um, and it's something that I've actually been thinking about this weekend. Um, not that I, you know, I don't, I don't have one investor here. Um, I don't, I don't want to cash out all my investors, but I, I think providing that opportunity actually is is pretty powerful. You know, they've they're they're people that have earned you know money on their money, and you know, you give them the option to to you know get out of the deal completely uh, with a with a great return. I I think that'd be a great option. Kevin, you had talked about how one of your investors going into the acquisition said, I'd like monthly financial reports. Let's pivot now to what the relationship looks like now that you're both in the seat post-acquisition. What do those relationships look like? Let's start with how much are you each communicating with your investors? I send a monthly update that has basic financials. It has um, kind of discussion of how the month went and um, you know some high-level KPIs. I do the exact same. So with that investor who requested monthly financials, I give monthly financials to everybody. Um, not always on time, but we we do we do try and close the books by the fifteenth. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a it's a great opportunity to get in front of your investor base, and especially if you have a lot of investors, like a, a large cap table like us. Those people, I mean, I know this for a fact. You know, some of the some of the guys on my cap table, they took a flyer on me. 50 grand, right? Which is nothing to them, but was a ton to me. And they run a $12 million family office, right? So there's more capital available. So if we do a good job, then we can go back to the well. And, and so, so having that investor relations kind of function in there and, and understanding that it's your job to, it's your job to kind of keep courting the people that are on your cap table too, and make sure that they're happy and make sure that, you know, everybody's still aligned. Um, so I, I find the monthly update to be powerful. And more crucially than that is if you do a bad job, right, they yeah. should see it coming from a mile away so that if you do need to go back to your investor and say, hey, we need some more capital to make this work, they're not blindsided by it. They've seen, they've understood why because you've given them the color over many months as to how you've ended up there. They have faith in you that the plan you have in mind is going to work. Um, like I think as the owner of a business, you have an important responsibility to constantly reduce your cost of capital whether it's on the debt side or the equity side. And you know, transparency with your lender, transparency with your equity is how you do that. Yeah. And we've heard that explicitly. I mean, Tony this morning was talking about one of his one of investments is going kind of going sideways and he's only hearing about it now and the guy's coming back to him for more money and he's like, no, thanks, no thanks. And I've heard Lisa say many times and other lenders, like if something is starting to go badly, let me sooner than later. Like that is the the law to live by. You both have said now that you had 12 investors, which is a lot, a crowded cap table. What is kind of the norm and uh, what are the pros and cons of having a lot of people on there? 
from what I've heard from other self-funded searchers, it sounds like eight to 12 is normal. Um, some that were a little bit more careful or maybe more like four to six, but I wasn't sure how many investors it would take. Um, 12 is probably a little too many, but you know, I overshot in case I was undersubscribed. Um, how much did you end up raising? Uh, like around 400 ish. Okay. Yeah. So I, and uh, the reason I have 12 investors is because I raised 800 grand and my minimum was 50. And most people took that option, which is great. And I, you know, it allowed more people to get into the deal. It allowed that that large family office, or my opinion, large family office, to uh, to write a small check and take a flyer on me. Um, you know, so twelve. I had a couple. I had a couple um, hundred thousand dollar investors and and two hundred fifty thousand dollar investors, um, but the rest were the rest were fifties. Going back now to looking, being selective about investors and being strategic in who you choose. Either of you leaned on your investors for challenges that you've encountered in the business. Have they delivered value other than the cash in your tenure as a CEOs? Yeah, definitely for me. I mean, different investors have different skills, different skill sets, and I have gone to multiple of them over the past fourteen months with very like tactical questions, more strategic questions, and it's like you've got this group of really well-paid consultants that are, they're not working for free, they've got equity, but like they're sort of working for free with every incremental hour they give me. I, so the, the way I set up my deal was if they invested, it's, the way the math works out, if they invested $100,000 or more, they got a board seat. Um, and so that was kind of how I managed my, my 12 investor cap table. Um, and so the people who, who gave, you know, 150 and hundred are now on the board. What's, what's nice about that is, um, two of the, two of the investors on there are, are sales guys. And so, you know, I have a large outside sales force that's distributed all over the country and, um, you know, and salespeople need incentives. And so there, it was one of those things that I wouldn't have thought about, uh, until they, they, we had a board meeting last month, our first one. And um, they offered up, you know, like, guys, I, I told them I was having some problems with the sales staff and not problems, but like trying to figure out how to, how to push them in a new direction, how to work some of the smaller accounts. Um, and, you know, then they were quick to offer advice and want to follow up and all this kind of stuff because they live this, you know, they, they manage sales teams. So um, that was like an unexpected kind of gift uh, from, my, from my advisory board. As you reflect back now, and, and you're both in the seats of CEOs, anything that you would have done differently in your raise process? I mean, I think we've touched on a few things, but any kind of last thought you'd want to leave people with a, a pitfall to avoid? It's very daunting out there, but um, trust me, if I can do this, if I can raise money uh, after you know never being in finance or having no idea how to do it and ne needing to talk to people like Sam every couple of weeks and be like, okay, so uh, investors get term sheets. What do I need to do for that? Um, subscription docs? I don't know what the hell that is. Um, you know, it's just all that kind of stuff that, you know, how, oh, I, I remember the, the best one was, uh, Sam, how do I call capital? I don't know how to do that. And you know, just like things that you hear and you're like, oh, I've never, I've never done that before. I don't know what that means. Um, you know, there's, People around here are really willing to pitch in and help um, to a to a person. I mean, I've, I haven't met somebody in this space who doesn't want to, you know, other people to succeed. So I, I think I think the lesson is, you know, have believe in yourself because you can do it. The money is out there, um, and if you have a good deal, the capital will come. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like one, if you're going down this self-funded path or traditional path, the wheel's been created. You don't need to recreate the wheel here. It's all the people in this room, you know, folk like you and I, 
you know, you, you can just ask us, we'll show you how, like what we did. It's pretty straightforward actually. Mm -hmm. And the, like you said the exactly the right thing. If you've got a good deal, the equity's there for the deal almost by definition, otherwise it's not a good deal. And it also just feels like our world is still quite small and there are a few nodes and connectors, Sam being an obvious example, Tony. It feels kind of like a, a domino effect. So if you, if you knock down that first domino, kind of the rest are easy to at least get introductions to. Is that a fair characterization of, of what it feels like? I think that's probably right. I mean, there's, like you're saying, there's some super connectors in our space, like Sam and Steve Ressler. Um, and that helps a lot on the self-funded search team, you know, like everybody in that world. But, you know, you've probably got somebody in your world that is interested in this. Like I've got five of the investors on my cap table are from my career, my finance career, folks from that world that just getting the ball rolling helps a lot. Right. And like one of them was more than willing to write a much bigger check. And that kind of gave me the confidence to lead into the rest of the fundraise, you know, with my front foot. And so I think just getting that first one done is it really feels good. Yeah. And to kind of go on the point of super connectors, I mean, uh, let's just be honest. I mean, there are a lot of lazy people out there who have money to deploy and um, they look for certain people who are on a cap table and then they will just co-invest and that's fine. You know, you, you can use those people too. They're not bad people. They're just, they're somewhat outsourcing their diligence to another provider, right? It happens all the time in Silicon Valley. It happens in this space too, where they, you know, oh, this person's on the cap table, huh? They like this deal. Well, that must be a good deal then. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can, you can, you can spin your wheels on, on, on all that kind of stuff, but, but connecting with the, the super connectors and is, is going to return dividends for you. And in our space in particular, the super connectors are shockingly generous oh, with their relationships, fantastic. Yeah. which is really, really nice, right? They're not holding deals for themselves or for just their people. Like they are really, really generous with that. And so we're lucky to op operate in this space. Great. I think we have a few more minutes. Can we open up to Q&A? Kevin, uh, you said you talked to 350 potential investors. What did you use to manage all that? I mean, was it 349 no's until you got a yes? Um, you mean like what, how did I manage the whole process? Like what tool did I use or what did, I'm sorry, I may not have understood the question. Yeah. How did you keep everything straight? And, yeah. You know, I wish I had a wonderful answer for this. I mean, I, I tried to stand. So like, I, I think I had a lot of ADD during the process and, um, I, Sam asked, make sure to ask Sam, uh, what his favorite CRM to use is. He loves that question. He, he will talk to you for two hours about CRMs. So I, I tried to use a CRM, uh, but I, I, I'm uh, 280 and it didn't work. Um, I still need to do that. But the answer was Excel. I just made a spreadsheet and, you know, whatever. I just went through it and kind of kept, I put a date on there, the last contact and, you know, what, what they soft committed for or what the, oh, I, I, I'm sure I wrote some notes on there. It's like, wow, this guy was a jerk. Don't call this guy back. Um, or like, you know, Hey, this, this person may be good for a future thing. You know, I made, I made notes to my future self on this, um, on this Excel spreadsheet, but I mean, the funnel is real. You need, you need a big top of funnel, especially if you don't have, if you don't have former finance people, uh, that, that used to be on your team, you know, you're coming in cold like me. Um, you got to have a large funnel and that the list is a great place to start. I think there's, you know, 250, 300 people on that list. And so I, and I went out and added more just scraping LinkedIn and, like I said, doing Google searches of random PE firms and God knows what else um, that I sent emails to. I had a spreadsheet with name, NDA sent, NDA received. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. teaser sent, teaser received, interested, not interested in amount of money. Yeah. 
um, one, one shout out is Live Oak has a equity worksheet that helps you calculate the 20% PG threshold. That is super useful for making sure you're actually keeping everybody under the right thresholds so they don't trip into PG world. Just to plug for CRMs, like remember CRMs come from managing sales relationships. And as Kostub said earlier, like this is a sales process. So important, like using a CRM will help reinforce that in your own mind that you are selling, 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 and you should manage all those points of contact. Next question. Hi, I'm Cody. I'm a self-funded searcher based in uh, Southern California. I was curious to hear you guys um, kind of how you arrived at the ownership percentage that you negotiate on the common because... You know, first of all, there's different kind of target IRRs you can be, you know, trying to ask to get from an investor. And then when you model it out, you know, you could do some distributions kind of early on to kind of juice it, for example. So I, I'm just curious how you like practically actually like get to 70% or like 75%, for example. I think the, the percentage of equity you get as a searcher is an output of the quality of your deal and the amount of leverage you're putting into it. So if you are doing max SBA leverage, the investors for that type of risk profile need to be earning, you know, like a mid thirties IRR in a reasonable base case, which means, you know, like mid single digit revenue growth, not 20% annual revenue growth. So if you build that model, you can figure out what return that, you know, implies that the investors need and what equity that means you get as a searcher. And if that number is smaller than you wanted as a searcher, it means you don't have that great of a deal. I think that's exactly right. So uh, as for the way that I the way that I approached it was I number one, I had to raise quickly. So I wanted to offer aggressive terms. Uh, number two, I was buying in an industry that most people were like, really? I bought a, I bought a textile business. You know, we import we design uh, here in the US and we import product from India and from Turkey. And then we wholesale distribute uh, throughout the country well, throughout the world. Um, and most people did not like that industry. Uh, so I needed to offer aggressive terms and, and I did, uh, so you can back into it that way too. You can also pick an IRR that you want to get to and sort of back into it that way. Um, that's, that's maybe the, the right way to do it. I don't know. Um, I, I just looked at it as like, uh, I, I saw what sort of the standard was like, oh, you need a two times equity step up and you need a 10% pref rate. I'm like, okay, well, let, let me sweeten the pot a little. Let me do a two and a half times step up and let me do a 12% pref. And maybe that'll attract the capital I need. So it wasn't rocket science or any, you know, any um, difficult process. It was just, you know, putting it out there and seeing if anybody bit. Just to comment, I actually ran a Twitter poll and I asked, what do, if you're an investor, what do you think is like a target IRR? And there was like 25, 30, 35%. And there were votes kind of across the board, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, if you voted 25%, you know, reach I, out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did either of you have lead investors that you particularly negotiated terms with and then everybody else got the same terms? Or how many how many investors did you negotiate when you talk about terms, pref rate, et cetera? How many, how many of your investors did you negotiate with that? And then how many of them just got what that first person took, got what you originally offered? How did that process work? I just set what it was and it was reasonable and everyone signed up to it. It also, I mean, to be clear, I probably could have gotten better terms, but I was in under, I was operating with the idea of like, Hey, these are people I want to work with for a long time. That's exactly I would love right. to raise more money from them in the future. Like this isn't my only bite at the equity apple. And so I left some money on the table sort of from the jump and everyone signed up to the deal I offered. 
I wanted a lead investor. I had $800,000 to raise in, you know, a short order. And so I tried to get those $500,000 check investors and struck out. Um, so I didn't have a lead investor, but, but, uh, investors did ask me like, Hey, if you, uh, some early people would, would ask me, you know, if you end up offering better terms, I want to participate in the same terms that everybody else gets, which I think is a fair ask. You know, if they commit early and they get worse terms than somebody who commits late, that's pretty crappy. Um, so I, I offered that to everybody too. Like everybody would participate in the same terms. Um, but that's, that's one of the reasons that, you know, I've, I've, I've joined a fund recently in order to be that $500,000 check investor, that lead investor for, for searchers. Right. So I, I joined a bunch of guys that, you know, we're, we're about to go raise $5 million and, and put that money to work in these self-funded deals in order to basically take it. So a deal like my size, uh, so it was about seven, seven million ish, uh, enterprise value. I raised 800, um, this fund that, that, that I'm now in could take out five to 600,000. So then you have a small friends and family round, which you could raise in this room in an afternoon if you have a good deal. Last question. Now that you're in the seat, what keeps you up at night and what keeps you excited about going to work every day? I love going to work every day. I, I, I really do. Um, I, man, I, I, I can't tell you how much fun it is to go to work. Um, I, I told Sam, I think Thursday when I got in that like, this is the first time in my life where I don't feel like I'm in a hurry to do something else. You know, I always ask myself, do I want to be doing this when I'm 50 at different points in my career? That was always my litmus test. And the answer was always, no, I I don't, this is fine for now, but I don't want to keep doing this. This is the first time in my life where I'm like, yeah, I want to be doing this in 20 years, 25 years, whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to, it's, it's fun to build something. Uh, it's fun to put your own spin on things, your own stamp. I mean, I, I bring my dogs into the office. My wife comes into the office. She doesn't work full-time in the business, but she has an office there and she works on her corporate job there. So it's, it's sort of like we're still working from home uh, like we did over COVID, but you know, now we work from home with a bunch of other people and we spend a ton of time at the office just being honest. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, what keeps me up at night, um, Right now, working capital. <laughs> we have a pretty we have a pretty working capital intensive business. It's it's an inventory business, you know. Uh, so, yeah, w- but when I when I uh, took over in January, um, I had to wire three hundred thousand dollars overseas for uh, inventory for our spring collection. I did not have three hundred thousand dollars in my bank account. Um, now, fortunately, I did get a substantial amount of of working capital in the deal, but it also matures a little slow, right? So, like. It's, it trickles in when even, even if, you know, somebody demands an upfront payment at $300,000, um, I can pay them. I just can't pay them right now. So you have to, you know, negotiate for extended terms. So that kind of stuff is being mitigated as we add a line of credit. Please don't ever buy a business without a line of credit. Um, you heard it from me first or maybe last and you'll never buy a business without a line of credit. Um, yeah. So working capital is the thing that keeps me up. It's also a lot harder to get the line of credit after you close. So get it at the time of closing. Um, anyways, for me, I mean, similar thought. I mean, I feel like for the first time, I'm, I feel deeply calm that I'm building towards a vision. I think the iterations through private equity, which I loved also as an intellectual endeavor, there wasn't a 10-year path that I could envision myself staying on. I now have kind of a vision of what life looks like 10 years from now. And so, I mean, look, right now it's tough, right? I'm not like there's, it's a roller coaster day to day, a lot of just difficult days. 
but I'm actually building towards something for the first time, it feels like. Um, and it feels like I'm building something for my employees. It feels like I'm building something for my clients. It feels like I'm building something for my city. So that's deeply gratifying. Um, the keep me up at night is sort of like the next thing. There's always the next, there's always something to do. There's always something going wrong. Like right now I need to learn how to do sales and marketing. This is not a skill set I have at all. We need to do it, figure out how to drive demand growth. Cause without that, I don't have a way to offer my team ways for them to grow. I, you know, like this is core to what we need to do. And like that keeps me up at night and that's just going to keep rotating to whatever's next. Um, but that's like, a small problem. I don't have like an existential crisis keeping me up at night. I know what I'm doing. And it's your problem. You get and to it's solve my problem. it, yeah, right? Exactly. It's not yeah. somebody else's problem that you're paid to fix. Right. It's, like, my I, it's like now it's just like, I need to suck it up and solve it. Yeah. Great. I think that we'll call it there. Co-Stub Dio and Kevin Beeblehausen, thank you guys very much for coming up here and, and sharing. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Will.